com. And you're listening to Community Radio, WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor, and streaming worldwide at WERU.org. Stay tuned for Wabanaki Windows with your host, Donna Loring. Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. Wabanaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Today, we'll be following up on a few programs we've had uh, describing the process of the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, here in Maine. And we have today uh, Esther Attian, who's a member of the Passamaquoddy tribe. Uh, she works with the uh, Muskie Institute at the University of Southern Maine. Um, Maria Girard, a Penobscot uh, council member. Uh, and they both work uh, with REACH, which is an arm of the uh, Wabanaki Maine TRC. Also with us is uh, Matt Dunlop, Secretary of State but he is also uh, a member of the newly appointed uh, commission. So today, I think what we'll do uh, is we'll start out with, with a recap uh, of uh, the Wabanaki Maine Truth and Reconciliation Commission, some of the history, and I'm gonna ask uh, Esther to bring us up to date on that. Good morning, thank you for having me today. Um, <clears throat> I help co-direct Maine Wabanaki Reach, which is a cross-cultural collaborative of um, folks that are helping to bring about best child welfare practices for Wabanaki people. And Reach stands for Reconciliation, Engagement, Advocacy, Change, and Healing. Um, please feel free to visit our website at mainwabanakireach.org. So Reach has been in existence under different names. We have a, the Re, Maine Wabanaki Reach is our new brand and identity, but we've been together since 1999, helping improve compliance with the federal legislation, the Indian Child Welfare Act, helping the state of Maine. And one of the things that we have done is conceptualize and establish the Maine Wabanaki State Child Welfare Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The commission was, the mandate for the commission was signed in June of 2012. The five commissioners were chosen and announced in December of 2012, and they were seated in February of 2013. Their mandate, um, the time frame of their mandate gives them until November 2015 to issue a report about what happened to Wabanaki children and families involved in the state child welfare system and to make recommendations for change. REACH's role, uh, we work very closely with the TRC. Our role is very critical. We advise the TRC. Um, we guide their work in Wabanaki communities, how they come into Wabanaki communities, when they come in, and what they do there is directed by the communities. And REACH helps facilitate that process by um, Wabanaki community organizers that we have in every community and at Wabanaki Health and Wellness in Bangor, which is a uh, urban native community of Wabanaki people. REACH is responsible for educating Maine and Wabanaki citizens about history, about intergenerational trauma and its impacts. We 
do a lot of outreach and identification of people who wish to share their story with the commission. We prepare and support those folks. So we do monthly community events. Um, Organizers spend a great deal of time visiting with people in their homes. And they also are providing different levels of support in the community for people to be prepared and feel supported through this process of truth sharing. They hold peace and healing circles in the communities. We also will, um, once the commission issues their report, we will help them disseminate that report. And we will also, after the commission's mandate is over and they've closed their doors, REACH will be here to help implement those recommendations and see them forward. Okay. Uh, Maria. Uh, now, Maria Gerard is a former co-host of Wabanaki Windows. So she's familiar with the program. Um, she's now um, working for REACH. And so, Maria, tell us about your uh, REACH experience so far. Okay. First, it's good to be back. Uh, and thanks for having us on the show. Um, when I first started working for REACH, I was working as a... Um, community organizer and I was approached to uh, help pave the way in the Penobscot community for the work that the TRC would be doing to prepare the community for the TRC visit. And um, basically we do that through um, films and discussions, uh, making people aware um, basically of the historical trauma. And the second role that I have with REACH is as a wellness coordinator at, um, and I, um, I go into um, Wabanaki Health and Wellness once a week and I'm able to work with the, the urban community there. Um, but basically what I'm doing in that wellness uh, coordinator role is researching uh, the historical trauma that is um, specific to Maine. There's a lot of good resources out on um, YouTube that you can find that will talk uh, generally about this historical trauma. There's um, the Canary Effect, which is a really good video that you can access online. Um, There's also a film called The Wellbriety Journey for Forgiveness, which also gives um, a really good overview of the type of historical trauma that Native tribes have experienced collectively. And uh, it's been really interesting uh, doing this research. Um, this, this concept of historical trauma was um, coined in the 1980s. And um, it's basically saying that, um, you know, the trauma that's inflicted on any group of people over multiple generations still affects them today. So this trauma that they experience um, here in Wabanaki land for 200 years is cumulative and it's collective and um, it manifests itself um, in a lot of the the social and health issues that we experience today as Native peoples. Okay, and we're going to go to Matt. Uh, Matt, uh, presently the Secretary of State. Uh, Good to have you here, Matt. Thanks for having Uh, me. So uh, tell us a little bit about uh, the Commission. Well, uh, and, and Esther framed it pretty well. The, the commission was selected through a, a fairly lengthy process um, and was seated in February. And you know, we come from a, a fairly diverse 
uh, array of backgrounds. I mean, I mean I'm on there uh, along with uh, Carol Wishcamper, who's a former member of the State Board of Education. Uh, Gisa Tanamuk is a Wampanoag, uh, teaches at the University of Maine in Native Studies and, and, uh, and Peace Studies. And uh, Gail Werbach is, uh, is the chair of the Social Work Department at the University of Maine. And the five of us um, have been charged with taking testimony from people who are, who are negatively impacted. It's a fairly narrow window. And this is one of the things that's very difficult to keep your, your, your hands around based on the context of what's happened historically in the interaction between the native cultures and the, the northern Europeans who came over the last few hundred years. Um, you know, we're dealing with this narrow window of time from about 1978 uh, through about 1999 uh, after the implementation of the Indian Child Welfare Act and the failures of the state to, to adequately protect children in that system, especially native children, and in fact a systematic program instead where where children were routinely removed from native families as part of an outgrowth of an effort to base, to to in a continuation a historic continuation of the effort to erase native cultures and <clears throat> you know uh, Donna uh, you and I served together in in the legislature and I did I had a lot of interaction over the years both privately and publicly with the Penobscot nation especially and that was sort of my window into um, this work. I mean, I had no background in child welfare. Um, and, and as I have come to learn over the last 14 months, very limited understanding of what's been going on for the, for the last several hundred years with, um, with the Native peoples. And the work that we've done is we've been to three communities so far. We've been down to Zabayak, we've been to uh, four communities. Four communities, the Madaknakuk, uh, the Penobscot Nation. And, you know, we've heard a lot um, in a lot of different contexts. And we have more work to do. We have a lot more to hear. And I'm not exactly sure where this is going to – what the report's finally going to look like. But it's beginning to kind of take shape in the themes that we've been hearing from people. And it's absolutely horrific. It's absolutely horrific what we've been hearing just at the very surface. And, and, and this is – been very tentative. Not a lot of people have been showing up, but the people who have been showing up in some cases have come from very far away um, and told um, parts of their stories that are, you know, it's hard to, to imagine this happening in our neighborhoods around us to people that we know. And uh, it's been very difficult to absorb, to, to understand. Um, and there's a lot of history here that goes back, and, and Esther knows this and has given many talks about the history of these, of these interactions. Um, but it's been a theme of destruction. And um, I think in order to go forward, we have to you – know, part of our charge, you know, it's called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, to understand the truth and find – a way to reconcile this, you know, and it's something that we've talked a lot about as a commission. What is truth and what is reconciliation? And it's very – I don't think it's necessarily our goal per se to reconcile the native sovereign tribes and the white community. They were never together. It's hard to bring them back together when they were never together. I kind of view it as a, it, more directly that, that my community, the white community, the, the, the legacy of northern European – uh, immigration, conquest, to reconcile our own history, our own roles in the destruction of our neighbors. 
Um, and you know, one of the discussions, and I don't want to go on too long because I know these others have a, an awful lot to say, but in the discussion of, of this work, one of the background themes that comes up in almost every setting is the, is the theme of genocide and what it means. And, you know, genocide is a relatively new term that came about after World War II to describe what had happened. You know, it's something – but it's something that we've been practicing as a culture. And I'm, ta- I'm speaking from my own background as a northern European. It's part of our history going back tens of thousands of years. This is what you do. You, you know, you go to another village and you wipe it out. You salt the earth. You kill all the men and enslave all the women and children. And that's become part of our cultural heritage, um, and, it, it, and we can talk more about that. But um, it's not just lining people up against a wall and shooting them. And I think this is one of the things that we have to get into our narrative. What is genocide? Is it, It's not just mass graves. I mean obviously that's the most recognizable piece of genocide, but it's really erasing a culture, um, erasing a language, erasing customs, uh, you know, breaking up families so that children grow up not knowing who they are and not understanding their culture. And in its most effective manifestation, we all become even unwitting participants in it. Um, you know, the, the, and um, you, know, you watch um, a Disney movie and how Native Americans are portrayed in Disney movies, especially the older ones. It's absolutely mocking and it's, it's shameful to watch if you understand this context. But it's it's embedded into our culture. It's embedded into our in, into the way we're educated as children. I grew up in Bar Harbor, which is a fairly cosmopolitan community, and I didn't understand that we had native tribes in Maine. And the only thing I knew about Native Americans was what I saw on TV and cowboy shows. And when it became you know, I came to understand as a little kid at five years old that we had Indians in Maine. I was afraid to go outside for a while because all I knew was the Indian attacks I saw on TV. And that's what is embedded into you. And um, when, you know, the people that, like I say, the people that you know and people that are your friends and you hear their story about how they were tortured as children because they were Native Americans, um, it, it's, it's, it's a, it becomes a very, very heavy thing to, under, to try to understand. And, and the first thing I realized and I'm a public official, and this has had its own share of controversy, but as a public official, I realized right out of the gate, as soon as I heard these first narratives, there's absolutely no way I can separate myself from what others have done before me. And this is what we have to make part of the narrative. You know, um, it kind of makes me wonder, uh, Matt, I, uh, you had to have applied to be uh, a member of the commission. I was actually nominated. You were nominated. Yeah, somebody okay. asked me. But you had not- to be interested, too. Well, I was, you know, I, I like helping people. Okay. <laughs> you know, I, I, and my question, I guess, is what what was sort of your motivation to uh, go ahead with this and be a member of the commission at that time? It evolved. It evolved. Uh, a, a woman in my church who teaches at the university had asked if she could nominate me. I said, let me ask a couple of questions before, because you know, I've seen in my time, even at a high level in the legislature, a lot of great ideas, you know, that we're going to, we're going to send this out to the tribes and we're going to save them. It's like, well, you know, I, I don't want to be a part of that. So let me uh, find ask a couple questions. And uh, somebody who I think a great deal of and trust a lot, Wayne Mitchell, who's the current Penobscot rep in the legislature, I called him up and asked him, what do you think? He said, this is one of the most important things that's ever come down the road. And I said, okay, put my name in. I mean, because 
like I said, I don't know a lot about child welfare, and I and I thought I had a pretty good articulate understanding of the Penobscot Nation, and I was blown away through this process over the last year how little I know about, like I said, what's happened in my own neighborhoods to people because of who they are. Um, you know, so my interest in it was really like, you know, I, 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 like, I, said, I like to help. I like to be a part of something positive. I, knew, I kind of had a dim understanding that this was a big idea, a big deal. Um, but every time we go into another one of these communities, I come out of there just exhausted and still not fully understanding why I'm here, why I was selected. In our first conference call as commissioners, all of us said the same thing. Um, uh, Sandy Whitehawk, who's the fifth commissioner, I forgot to mention her. She's a, a Lakota uh, from – she lives in Minnesota. All of us said the same thing. We never thought we'd be picked. You know, there seems like there's so many much more qualified people. But they picked us for a reason, and uh, we work incredibly well together. We support each other well. And, um, you know, with, as we get through this, through this process, I'm hopeful that we come up with something that will serve as a landmark for others who want to do the same type of work. Okay. Um. Esther, do you have any comments? Or? Um, well, from my perspective in, in being part of the work since the beginning and when we first had this idea in 2008 and seeing, you know, meeting all of these challenges that came with trying to establish a commission and hearing people say, you'll, that'll never happen. You know, you'll never get the, the governor to sign on this. You'll never get the state of Maine to participate and, and just forging ahead. And even when the commission was formed and how our work was together then, and still we're, it's still evolving. And as the commission has entered Zibayag in November, Madokmigok in February, and they went to uh, Bunwapskewi and Wabanaki Health and Wellness um, in March and plans to, you know, they'll be up north at uh, Micmac and Malice in May and thinking about the relationship between the TRC and REACH and how that is ever evolving and changing and us realizing how how much we really, um, our work is intertwined, how much the TRC really needs REACH. And it, it's it's been an amazing, an amazing journey. When, when we look back, when I, there's a PowerPoint presentation that I give that really gives a history of how we started and how we got here. And every time I talk about, um, every time I talk about those dynamics between that group and reach, and how that started to expand, because that that was the pro- really a process of decolonization, because we spent many um, from 2008 until we had the Declaration of Intent signed and the mandate in 2012. We had to do a lot of of that personal reconciliation that Matt was talking about. Um, at I remember the first meeting where we said the word white people because REACH is made up of Native people and white people. And, yep. Before, could you tell us who is... Who is on the REACH board? who's on the REACH board? (laughs) Um, Currently, uh, represented Penobscot Nation, we have Erlene Paul and the newly hired child welfare person. She just came to one meeting. I think her name's Amanda... Brenda King. Thank you. (laughs) I'm so bad with names. She just came to one meeting. (laughs) Um, representing Zabayag, we have the social services director, Molly Newell, who's also the co-chair of REACH, and Mary Barnes, who does foster care. Representing uh, Maliseet, we have the ICWA coordinator, Lori Jewell, and Connie Smith, who um, also served on the commission selection panel, representing Maliseet. For Micmac, we have the ICWA coordinator, Tanya Paul. She just got married. <laughs> and... Uh, 
and Luke Joseph, who also does the uh, casework. And we have Sharon Toma from Wabanaki Health and Wellness, Denise Altivator from the AFSC Wabanaki Program. We have a young person, um, Tanisha Wright. And from the state, we have Martha Prue, who is an assistant program administrator, but additionally, her role is to be the equal liaison between the tribes and the state. And she is also a co-chair. And we have Teresa Doobie, who is the PQI um, person that, um, for the state of Maine. So we currently don't have any representation from Madokmiguk, and we are reaching out to um, the chief to, to see if we can get somebody uh, appointed and supported to, to be on the REACH board. Um, so that's the REACH board members, and we also have, we have a lot of staff. As I mentioned, we have Wabanaki community organizers in every community. Some of them work five hours a week. Some of them work 10 hours a week. Um, we have two coordinators for the state of Maine, two, uh, Wab uh, two organizers for the state of Maine in the northern and southern part of the state. We have um, a community engagement coordinator who helps coordinate the volunteers and do education and outreach in Maine. And we have, and Maria mentioned, she's the health and wellness coordinator as well as serving as a Penobscot community organizer. And we have an evaluation specialist, which is a very important piece of work. Um, we have developed a comprehensive survey that we have been administering at our public events in the state and in Wabanaki communities, which ask a lot of questions about people's level of knowledge about history, intergenerational trauma, and their views about tribal state relations. And it also asks a set of questions that come from, they're called ACES, the Adult Childhood Experiences Survey. And we've been able to so far from the small samples that we've been able to get um, have some really great information. What we found out is that Native people have, which isn't a surprise to us, disproportionate risk factors. And they also have um, less resources towards resiliency factors. And the opposite is true for the non-Native people that have filled out the survey. So this evaluation data is very helpful to us, not only to evaluate the work that REACH is doing, we have found out that by and large, um, sitting with community organizers, participating in um, circles with the commissioners, and also participating in those weekly peace and healing circles in the communities are the three things that have increased um, resiliency in the native people that have um, participated. So it helps us guide, it helps us know what we're doing and it helps us concentrate and focus on the things that, that are working. Um, it's also painting um, a bigger picture about risk factors and resiliency in the state of Maine. So I'm very excited about that. We have a part-time um, PhD student who is working on that evaluation piece for REACH. Now, you, uh, you started to tell a little story there, and mm -hmm. I interrupted you. Do you remember what it was? Um, oh, just, just the process that the REACH group has gone through since we started together in 99. And I, I, you know, I likened it to a process of decolonization and that we all had have a responsibility to that. And I remember the first time... Um, we had a meeting and we started talking about things like racism and um, identity and internalized oppression. And they were really difficult meetings because everybody had to bring themselves into it. It wasn't until we started taking 
everything we knew and moving it from our heads to our heart and really connecting with each other as um, on that real deep level of humanity. It wasn't until we started doing that that we were really able to move this work forward. And that's basically what we're asking everybody to do that participates in this work. And we're not, and we're not doing it from a, a place of not having done it ourselves. We've had those difficult conversations. We've, we've, we've cried with each other. And um, when I think about the folks that are on reach and how we interact now and how we view each other as compared to when we first started, it's, it's completely different. We were strangers then, and we're more like a family now. Mm-hmm. So I have... I have a lot of hope in this process. I've seen, I've been in circles with people that I grew up with, people I've known my whole life, and I've never, never known their pain and never known what they've gone through. And it's life-changing. It's life-changing to, to be witness to that, and it's an honor for, for people to share that. And I, and I have complete trust that all of those commissioners um, recognize that responsibility that they have to honor those stories. And I see, I see it happening, and... Whether or not, you know, there's tr- three purposes to the TRC, truth, healing, and change. The healing is happening through the truth-seeking and will continue. The truth is, is being documented, and the change piece comes when they write their report and they have their recommendations. And I am confident that regardless of what those recommendations are, that the healing that I've seen happen in, in my community and the other Native communities is for me, the most powerful piece. And to me, that's the thing. I'm very confident, you know, Native people, we don't have economic power, we don't have political power, but we have the spiritual and cultural power to heal from intergenerational trauma and to turn around these these present realities. You know, that we have the highest rates of socioeconomic distress, you know, and, and it's easy for people on the outside and even for Native people to, to look at the realities of our communities and think there's something wrong with us. You know, um, but there's nothing wrong with us. This is just what communities look like that have been targeted for destruction, as Matt had talked about with genocide. You know, we're not supposed to be here, but we've survived, and we can thrive. I, I just know it. Maria, um, your your position is uh, your uh, <coughs> what's your position? The wellness coordinator. Wellness coordinator. Mm-hmm. So. Tell me what that entails and what you've done so far with uh, your experience. Well, most of my time so far, I've uh, spent uh, researching the historical trauma. I'm putting together a presentation for the Wabanaki communities and uh, particularly for healthcare providers to highlight um, these sorts of traumatic experiences that we've endured over the years and how those play out um, currently, as Esther said, in this, this socioeconomic distress. And as the history unfolds, you know, more and more stories are being uncovered that really reveal the full extent of the trauma that has been inflicted um, against Wabanaki people. And I find that as people start to understand that history, um, it almost feels like like when you've been sick a very long time and you don't have a diagnosis and you're just wondering, you know, what, what is wrong? And... Historical trauma feels like that diagnosis, like we finally can get an understanding on what's been plaguing us as a community for so long, and um, and so then we were able to to get a handle on it. Um, You know, some of these 
Well, we say for Wabanaki that um, Wabanaki people, the people here in Maine, have really bore the brunt of colonialism, just uh, basically due to our geographical location here. And um, a lot of the things that we've experienced, other tribes across the nation have experienced the loss of land, um, which... Uh, is equivalent to the loss of livelihood and the inability to support ourselves from that land, um, the loss of language, um, having children taken away and, and removed and religious practices outlawed, um, the children being removed really began with the, the boarding school era in the 1800s. And a lot of this trauma is going back to that time where thousands and thousands and thousands of Native children were removed from their communities and they were raised in industrial boarding schools where they didn't know they never learned how to love they never learned how to be part of a family a lot of times these children were physically and emotionally and sexually abused while they were there and then when they were too old to be in the boarding schools they were just kind of let loose in in society and, and just didn't know didn't know anything. They didn't know how to love. They didn't know how to care for a family. Um, a lot of times people had difficulty making decisions for themselves because everything was so regimented in the, these boarding schools. And um, one of the the more famous boarding schools that we hear about a lot is the Kailal Indian Residential School in Pennsylvania. And we had a lot of Wabanaki people who attended that school and so when they return back to their communities, they're returned as broken people, people who have not been allowed to speak their own language. And so then there's you know, those difficulties of communication. They're really viewed as outsiders. And so when you take your children out of a community, you're really um, impacting the whole tribe uh, as it exists. Um, Chief Brenda Commander of the Holton Band of Maliseets once spoke about this, and she said that, at one time, 16% of all Maliseet children are in state custody. And um, the boarding school era began in the 1800s, and it lasted right up until the 1990s. So it's a pretty um, traumatic history. And, um, you know, one of the, the big issues is the, the loss of land and um, how quickly that was uh, taken away. And I was just, uh, I'm probably going off track a little bit, but um, I wanted to just talk a little bit because I was talking about this um, a couple of days ago with another group about, um, you know, specifically the loss of um, tribal territory for Penobscot. Um, you know, when we had agreed with the new state of Maine in 1820, um, well, I guess it's a long history story, but <laughs> basically in 1820, um, we were promised uh, certain lands that we could keep in perpetuity, the four townships. And a lot of people who are familiar with Penobscot history are familiar with the loss of the four townships. And what's amazing is that in 1820, we were promised that we would be able to keep this land and the, the quotes in the, the conference meeting minutes say, so long as the sun shines and the water runs and the trees grow and all of that. But it was actually 13 years uh, before that land was taken from us. So um, that, that's a big blow to a nation's psyche. 
you know, when their complete way of living is disrupted and destroyed repeatedly uh, time and time again. Right. It's when your resources and uh, way of life's been taken away and uh, it uh, does a job on your uh, self-esteem and... uh, Absolutely. So, yeah. Uh, So, Matt, back to you. Um, So, what... What's your feeling now about uh, what's happening? I mean, do you are you ha- are you glad that you became a commission member? Oh yeah, I'm very glad I have. Um, I've learned an incredible amount. There's a lot more to learn. Uh, the thing that I find fearsome is how much people don't know in in my community about you know how do I translate what we've learned into something that people can understand and absorb. Uh, without simply rejecting it and saying, well, that's not, that's not us. That's not me. I've, I've never discriminated against somebody. I've never abused somebody. But that's it's still part of, of, of our culture. Um, and in, it, that's the part I think that's going to be very difficult to articulate um, in our report, that this is it, – it's all around us. And, uh, you know, you, you, when you talk about the loss of language, the loss of culture, the loss of religion – um, it's something that we should be a lot more familiar with than we are. I mean, you know, we were one of our first meetings. We went to the Penobscot Nation, and um, we had elders from many of the communities come to meet with us. And it kind of developed. Um, and Esther was there; she probably remembers this. But it sort of developed into almost an impromptu talking circle near the end of the day. And people went around; they said what they had to say. And some people spoke in their language. Which is – it's a beautiful language to listen to. And I don't care if you're talking about Passamaquoddy, Penobscot, whatever. They're, they're beautiful languages to listen to even if you don't understand what's being said. And uh, this, one of the elders broke down in tears and talked, said she couldn't speak her language because her mother had been taken away and her grandmother who raised her wanted to save her from the abuse and trauma that she would face being a native speaker. And, you know, that – it's it's really unfathomable to think that somebody would go through that, you know, because you know my family came from a couple of different points in Europe that we can sp- specify to, but I can't speak Scots Gaelic. That was from my father's side of the family. None of us can speak that. Uh, my mother's family came a big chunk of them came from Normandy. None of us speak French. We speak English, uh, and you th- you know you think about you know you start to start to spread that out and then narrow it back down to what's happened right in front of us. Um, you know, we had 20 native tribes in Maine. There are four left. What happened to the others? You know, and we have historical accounts that troops of soldiers went to wipe out the Kennebecs. You know, and one of the things I did as Secretary of State in the first iteration, and this is not my first time as Secretary of State, we created, and you were actually one of our first judges for the Native American History and Culture Essay Contest. And I think, you know, you'd be really pleased to read some of those essays now. The first few years, and that was right after the legislation was passed that you introduced about having a native component to our education system. Some of the stuff that we were getting was pretty dreadful, if you remember. And I had to sort of say, look, we're talking about who's – the award goes to who does it best, not who does it right. Um, But this last iteration of of essays from students about what they understand about not only – you know, native culture, but the work that we're doing right now, one of my uh, graduate school classmates is now teaching in Europe and found the essays online. He says, I want to teach these to my students in the Czech Republic. It was that good. So that's good. You know, at least we're getting that conversation going. 
one of the things I, I think about the work of the TRC especially, um, we're going to be issuing a report. That report is not going to undo 500 years of invasion, misuse, open neglect, and outright hostility. It's not going to undo, undo that or the effects of it, but it starts a conversation. And you know, we've examined the work of truth commissions all over the world, and this is something that I was not familiar with at all. Was you know, truth commissions. Some of them are truth commissions. Some are truth and reconciliation commissions. And looking at that work, it, it's it's amazing what what we do to each other. You know, when you look at the the truth commission work in El Salvador or in Rwanda or, or Sierra Leone, um, you know, there's there's a lot to absorb. Um, you know, I think coming coming out of this um, in, in the next year, year and a half, um, the the real work will start then. I mean, right now we're just doing the you know it's almost mechanical. You know, we we schedule meetings, we schedule visits, we and we take testimony, and we try to absorb that and make a narrative out of it. Um, what will come next is now how do you disseminate that into knowledge that people can understand. One of the things that we've learned about this, this dialogue between the white communities historically and the native communities is that you know, two things happen when people are told they're worthless. The people hearing it come to believe it and so do the people saying it come to believe it. And of course, it's not true. But like I say, we, we, in, in, a, in a really, um, really – difficult to understand process we become participants in this and that's the part that you know for the for the for the non-native community understanding our role in the destruction of native peoples um, will be very very difficult that it'll be very difficult to have that conversation but we have to have it because that is the key is that when we begin to understand our our own history our own the things that you know, we've become instruments without even understanding our role, either as public officials you know, or as private citizens, you, you, you know, repeating racist jokes that you hear. You know, I mean I worked in commercial kitchens. We heard it all. Um, you repeat that and you're carrying forward that sword and that hurts people. And to, if, if we can do nothing else productive, I hope we stop doing what we've done. Because uh, it's still going on. It's still going on, and, and that's evidenced by everything we hear from people, people I know, people I respect, have learned to admire, and hearing what they went through as children, um, it's heartbreaking. I can't emphasize that enough. Um, and the first, the first visit, and we've never done this before. We're brand new at this. I have no background in this. And to go to a community and hear about children locked in damp, cold basements with no lights overnight, being forced to stay all day in a bed that they, that they urinated in by accident, being forced to steal food, being forced to kneel on broomsticks all day long, being beaten for speaking their language. Um, you know, and, 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 I've, and I've heard from some people in the white community say, look, that's what happened to the French too. French children were beaten for speaking French. Why are we just focusing on this? And the, and the answer really is because it was systematic. It was systematic. It was programmatic. Whether we realize we were doing it or just, you know, if you look, go back 
you know, we go back to the doctrine of discovery, you know, the papal bull that said that, you know, all treasure and lands in the savage nations was forfeit to Christians. Well, what's that got to do with us? It's exactly has everything to do with us because every single piece of public policy descended from that is tied to it, is tied to it. Uh, the policies of the colonial governments from before King Charles and after King Charles, Sir William Phipps and his adopted son, who was the, was the magistrate who issued the bounty for scalps. Um, George Washington had plenty to say about it. You know, uh, Abraham Lincoln had plenty to say about it. Teddy Roosevelt had plenty to say about it. All very negative and, and jammed against the tribes. Um, and in the state of Maine, we've just just carried that on generation after generation after generation and you can't talk about what's happened since 1978 without understanding that context because it's an absolute part of it it's as much of a part of it as you know you take a log house and one of the out beams it sticks out of the building it's part of the whole thing even though you're only talking about that one little piece jutting out um it's it is inexorably intertwined with everything else that's happened to native peoples since since 1500 and before um and it's you know this is this is the first of its kind in the world where you have different governmental entities coming together and agreeing to do this. There's a lot of fear involved because of the stories that are going to be told, and there's fear in the white community as well. And um, you know I've I've heard a lot about that over the last you know year plus about what those fears consist of. I think they're baseless. I think we have to have these conversations and we have to keep going in spite of those fears. Is if we don't, it just keeps going. And then we're afraid of the answer. I'm curious, Matt. What what are uh, a couple of those fears? Tragically, they tend to revolve around money. Um, you know, one of the first things I heard about was, uh, and in fact, I got a call from the governor who said, "You can't be on this commission." You know, this is after we've been this is two days before we take the oath and be seated. And it's curious because when I was interviewed um, in the final interview and, and it went through quite a process and I said, go ahead, you know, nominate me. They'll never pick me. <laughs> um, and I actually when I when it went as far as I got the notice for the interview, I think I, I think I actually said to the interview committee, it must be pretty lonely at the bottom of the barrel if you guys are talking to me. Um, but they asked me at the time because this was in you know September October, and by that time it was kind of an open secret that I was running again for Secretary of State. And for people who aren't aware of how that process works, it's elected by the legislature after they get sworn in. So it's kind of an insider baseball game that people don't see. And they asked me, did, you know, did I think there was a conflict? I said, there's, there's no crossover whatsoever. We have no policy oversight of anything tribal, uh, so I don't see a conflict at all. In fact. If I don't get elected, I probably can't do it because then, you know, as as Secretary of State, I have a lot of control over my own schedule, not as much as I would like. <laughs> but uh, you know, if I if I am not elected, then I can't because I got to go find a job, and no job is going to give me the flexibility to take days off at a time, or to be only available by phone or or whatever. And um, you know, be, people, you know, I have a great department, I have great people that work with me, and and it makes it possible for me to do this. So, you know, we get named and then um, a couple months later before we get seated, I got a call on a Friday afternoon from the governor and he said, you can't be on this. You know, this, you have a fiduciary responsibility to the state of Maine that, you know, you can't separate your role as a public official from your role as a commissioner. He said, I respect the hell out of you, you know, and I believe in what, you know, if you weren't secretary of state, I'd have no problem with this. And what it boiled down to, you know, and I heard, and not just from him, I heard it from others, is the issue of reparations. 
And he said to me, somebody could use this report as a basis for claiming reparations. Well, you know, you were in the legislature, and I remember the day I, I was serving as Speaker Pro Tem and signed the bill that funded the Baxter Compensation Authority. Six million dollars to those poor kids that were so terribly abused at the Baxter School for the Deaf. There was no truth commission. We just funded it because it was the right thing to do. So and that was, that's been my position right down the line. I mean, you know, we weren't put together to find a way to get reparations. Reparations are going to be a, 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 are always going to be a different discussion than what we're doing right now. But that's been the biggest fear is that somehow this is going to be a basis to reopen the Land Claims Act or to get more money for the tribes. It's very base in my view. And for me, um, you know, as we heard all these fears – and most of it, like I say, fears about the political ramifications, the geographic ramifications, the, the monetary ramifications of the work of the commission. You know, I like to stand over something and look down on it and find out what's real and not even at that juncture understanding what we were going to be confronting, the issues of racism, the issues of genocide, not even fully – and I still don't fully understand the scope of all that and I admit that. But what I do understand – our kids. And I said, the one thing, I, and I asked the other commissioners, I said, if you guys want me to step off, because my presence on this commission will thwart our work, then I will. And I asked the same thing of my friends at the Penobscot Nation. I asked, you know, Wayne Mitchell. I asked my friend, you know, John Banks and Chief Francis. I said, if you guys think that my presence on this commission is going to be a distraction, I'll step off. And they'll just go forward with four. There's no, there's no provision to replace any of us. And every single person said, we want you to stay on. And I said, you know, the only thing that I'm not afraid of here is the laughter of a child. And let's keep that in mind. This is about how we treat kids. And, um, how, you know, and what's happened here is, is, is evil. Anybody that does that to a child, in the things that we've heard, under any context, has no justification except evil. And, um, you know, it's, it's – like I say, this is going to be a very tough report to take to the public because that's – you can't avoid that stuff. We can't couch this in any other way than what it is. This is a, a systematic, systematic effort to destroy people because of who they were born as. And um, that's wrong and we have to accept accountability for it. We have to stop it and then move forward and maybe foster some healing among the communities. Uh, Esther, you have something to say? My hand is raised. <laughs> um, just – a couple of things. First of all, I think what folks need to understand, it's not only our, an acknowledgement, you know, being educated about history and acknowledging what happened, but to realize what is still happening. And the the piece is for people to understand how they continue to benefit from the fact that we were targeted for destruction. I mean, the, the, the very land that the studio is on that we're sitting in here right now um, was taken at a cost to Native people. 98% population depletion since first contact with Europeans. And the difference between how French peoples um, were oppressed and their language was taken from them and, and Native people is that very point. Um, the larger society doesn't continue to benefit from what happened to French people. Um, and it's even different than what happened to the children at the Baxter School. Um, those reparations were probably individual, I'm assuming even individuals. You know, I, I know that it's not the commission's goal um, 
to come to a conclusion that reparations are necessary, but I also don't want that to be off the table because when I think about the the disproportionate numbers of people in Wabanaki communities that have these risk factors and, you know, our high rates of socioeconomic distress and how we're disproportionately represented in the child welfare system, in the, you know, in our prisons and jails, and how our resources are also a lot lower and we don't have those resources. And, you know, in my mind, to build that infrastructure as we're, we're starting to do with REACH and we're starting to um, figure out what our resources are in our communities and what is needed, you know, this is very important work that we're doing that could use an infusion of, you know, funding to help us do peace and healing circles, to, to spend time with people and to start doing this real, um, this real slow, uh, hard work of healing it's it's not going to happen without those resources. So that's Esther's personal <laughs> wish is that you know reparations is not something that that isn't being talked about because I think it's very it's very real and and you know reparations is is not a handout. You know it's not it's not um, welfare. It's it's to repair the damage that has been done that white people continue to benefit from. I mean, everybody in, in this country who is not indigenous benefits from the fact that we we're not supposed to be here. And that's real. And for people to, you know, that's what's difficult is that's where the reconciliation comes in for people to, to, to reconcile that guilt, you know, and I've seen it. I've educated so many white people about the history that they never knew. And it's very hard to hear. And then to it's, uh, our community engagement coordinator, Arla Patch, says the shock and awe. She's like, they're in shock and they're in awe. And then what do, do, what do they do with that? They feel bad. They feel guilty um, to reconcile all of that within themselves and figure out what they're going to do next, how they're going to go forward, and how they're going to leverage that privilege to help Wabanaki people heal so we can, we can be whole again. Maria? Yeah, I wanted to speak to that too, the reparations piece. Um, most of the people that I've talked to uh, really aren't talking about the reparations or the reconciliation. I think that the biggest wish that they're hoping for is that people start to, to own this history, to realize um, how they've benefited, and to stop because um, it's still happening today. And, um, you know, some people don't know that um, Native people weren't even allowed to practice their spirituality or their religion until 1978. Um, Native peoples in Maine could not vote until 1968 in the Maine election. Um, I was speaking to one elder who was uh, 68, and he said he's been fighting his whole life, and he'll probably die fighting. The Indian people have to constantly fight for basic rights. And uh, I've done a lot of educational outreach over the past six or seven years, and I have a lot of hope in the people of Maine. Uh, I know that it is difficult for some to hear this history, but I think um, we have um, we have tons of allies. We have tons of people who are ready and willing for a new way of doing things. And um, one of the things I like uh, focusing on a lot is um, the prophecies. Um, I was speaking with somebody recently who said, you know, it must be just so hard to just keep from being, you know, totally um, just in despair 
um, over this history and, and over the continual treatment of Native peoples. And I keep remembering these prophecies, the Seven Fires prophecies, and they talk about, um, you know, where our ancestors predicted all of these things that have happened over the years with, you know, with the, the religious persecution, with um, the taking of our children, with the destruction of the land. And... Um, it was also prophesied that there would be a great healing, that all these things had to happen so that we as people could come together and work together for a better way. So I keep um, hanging on to that glimmer of hope and thinking that this is the work that we're doing here and where it will end and how it will turn out. I don't really know, but um, it's been a good healing journey, I think, for all people. I think there's a lot of hope when, you know, when I've heard elders in our communities say that they've been waiting for something like this for 30 or 40 years to come along and the you know to hear them speak in circles and it's that that's all the whenever i'm feeling like this is too much or too overwhelming and you know what the heck are we doing we can't do this i remember those people and you know and also the the white people that i've gotten to know who have really um, done this work and, and are working on their own privilege and their own racism and facing it head on. We do have a lot of allies. It's been pretty humbling to be a part of. And I mean, I, I believe in people and I have a lot of faith that this is going to, uh, it's going to be a long and, and tough road. But I think, I think basically the people are good and they want to do the right thing. And I think a lot of people don't realize what's been happening right in front of them. Um, Sandy Whitehawk, one of our commissioners from Minnesota, said, you know, their, their prophecies say this was meant to begin in the east um, and then move westward. And there's a lot of people watching this. There's a lot of hope. Um, and, and for my own part, I mean, I'm focused on what we're doing next and what we need to do, what, what we need to hear and um, to make sure we do it right. Um, and that's it's, – it's a daily challenge to make sure we do it right. So it's, it's been very, very powerful, incredibly powerful. Uh, and I hope we can convey that to people. And you have a timeline uh, for your report. And, and when is that final report due? Well, we have 27 months from the date that we were seated. We can ask for one extension of the signatories, and that includes the five uh, tribal chiefs and the, and the governor. Um, and then you – know, so like – as, as Esther said, I mean, that's really takes us out to November 2015. And then we, we stop the work, uh, our immediate work uh, as a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Uh, Reach's work does not stop. They'll continue to work with the communities. And, I, and, I, and I'm hopeful that the, the work that's happened in the communities will continue to grow and accelerate. You know, some of, the, some of the, the healing circles have been as powerful as they've been. They've, not everybody in the community is turning out to tell their story to Matt Dunlap. And why should they trust me? Why should they trust any of us after everything that's happened? And I think we understood that this was going to start in increments and then grow. So um, the immediate work that we're doing encompasses 27 months, and then it, it will continue. And I think you'll see more of this around the country. So the commission will actually write a report on what they've heard and what they've observed. They'll also make recommendations? Yes. And then that report will be looked at by REACH. Is that us? And then REACH will also, what, what's, what will REACH do? With? REACH's job will be to, to implement the recommendations as best we can and to work on those. Um, 
will also be involved in the dissemination of the report to make sure that all the tribal communities and the larger state community um, as Matt said, understand it. So, and we also working with the TRC have um, plans to hold some public events in the state of Maine, probably around next spring, that are that are based on some of the information that the commission is gathering. So the themes of those events will reflect what information they have gathered through their investigation as uh, events to to showcase what they've learned and to educate the larger public. Mm-hmm. So, and then there'll be. Uh, possibly some educational tools developed from this? Yes, that's our hope. Yes. We, one of the things that our, our, um, one of our goals or dreams was to be able to develop some tools so that um, other states and tribes around the country would be able to um, help them engage in this kind of process because it's the first, first official TRC in this country that uh, addresses Native child welfare issues and that has been established between, you know, at a grassroots level between um, tribes and the state with two sides coming together. And I know we have been contacted by other tribes. Um, actually, Sandy's state of Minnesota, she was working with them very closely um, and she saying, you know, we, we should do a TRC, we should do something like this. And then that's when she heard that we were doing it. And she was like, yep, it's it's meant, meant to, to be, be in the East. east. Maine was supposed to lead this. And uh, they're they're gearing up to, to do their own on the heels of this one. So One of the things I tried, I know we only have a couple minutes left, but one of the things I tried to, to get in my mind, try to understand this process, um, was look at, in a parallel sense, what happens if you don't have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission process? And something caught my eye in the newspaper that there was a, some motion in the Massachusetts Assembly uh, to, you know, yet again absolve yet somebody else of their criminal conviction for being a witch back during the Salem witch trials. And in fact, you know, the Bowdoin graduate um, who became a famous author uh, changed his name. Uh, from Hathorne to Hawthorne out of a sense of shame that his great-grandfather had been one of the judges in the Salem Witch Trials never recanted his role. And here we are now, almost 300 years later, still dealing with the aftermath of the Salem Witch Trials, an event that took place over a period of months. But if you don't have some way to confront the truth about what's gone wrong, then you always deal with it. And I think that's what we're hopeful that we'll be able to do. Mm. One last word, Esther. Um, reach isn't going anywhere. We'll be here for the long haul. Maria, quick. I just want to give a quick shout out to the fellow community organizers that I work with, Leona, Krista, Dina, Janet, Stephanie, and Juanita. Okay. I just want to thank the people of the Dawn for letting us into their communities and welcoming us and uh, letting us be a part of a healing process. Okay. Well, all right. I'd like to thank uh, thank you for joining us today. Um, I'm your host, Donna Loring, and you've been listening to Wabanaki Windows. Uh, I want to thank uh, Esther Atian, Maria Gerard, and Matt Dunlop, uh, and our engineer, uh, Joel. Thanks, Joel. And please join us again next month for another Wabanaki Windows. <laughs>